Well, as you know, well, you might know, last week we had our Christmas service with the kiddos, and we had a lot of fun. We really enjoyed that. Today we're back in Romans, and today's message is entitled, The Proof of God's Love. Now, don't worry if you came here expecting a Christmas message. I've got good news. The whole Bible is all about Jesus, and so we're going to get Christmas every Sunday of the year, okay? Now, if you've been with us, you know that going through the book of Romans, it's all about the gospel. It's all about the good news. And the good news is that although we are sinners, although we are guilty of judgment and hell, Jesus offers us forgiveness of our sin. Not because we're good enough or because we're worthy of it, but because God is merciful and He is gracious and He desires a relationship with us. Since God is a righteous judge, He cannot pardon us by simply ignoring our sin or looking over our sin. And so He sent His Son, Jesus, to bear our sins on the cross to fulfill the payment for our sin so that anyone who trusts in Jesus will be washed clean and treated like they never sinned at all. But at the same time, our sins will have been dealt with, not ignored. Paul has already shown to us in these first few chapters that we receive this amazing gift through faith, by trusting God to do what He said. And so Paul told us in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've trusted in Jesus to save you from hell and pay for your sin, then you are no longer under the wrath of God, but you have peace with God. You've been reconciled to Him. Two weeks ago, we saw that peace with God was not the only blessing that we receive by coming to Jesus, but that for a Christian, we can even rejoice in tribulation because that tribulation helps us grow and build our hope for heaven. If you've missed any of our studies so far in Romans, I encourage you, go to our website or YouTube and you can get caught up because there's so much good stuff as we study through this book. So now we pick up in Romans chapter 5 in verses 6 through 11. We read about no greater love. <clears throat> Romans chapter 5 verse 6. Paul says, For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, this phrase, still without strength, it speaks of our inability to save ourselves. The fact that we were hopelessly stuck in our sins and in our guilt. And yet it was in that hopeless state that Christ came and He died for us. By the way, when it talks about the, the name Christ, it's actually a title. And it means Messiah or anointed one. And so when, when you see Christ or Messiah, those are interchangeable. And they both mean the anointed one. It's talking about the promised Savior from the Old Testament who would descend from King David and he would come and bring salvation one day. And so here, Paul says that the Christ came and died in due time. In due time. So he's mentioning the timing of Jesus is coming to us. I like how Paul words this in one of his other letters, the letter of Galatians, in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. 
Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I like how he words that, but especially that phrase, in the fullness of time. That's got a very theatrical sound to it, doesn't it? In the fullness of time, Jesus came. Well, the point that Paul is making here is that God was very specific of when Jesus came. You see, when Jesus came, during this time in the Roman Empire, there were roads everywhere, right? Rome needed roads so that their armies could travel all throughout their empire and conquer and communicate. And with all these roads, now the gospel could travel to all these different places throughout the Roman Empire. Also, during this time, there was a common language throughout the entire Roman Empire, Greek. And so no matter where you went in Rome, you could communicate by speaking Greek. And so once again, the gospel was able to spread and make sense to all different peoples, all different nationalities because of this. Also, there was relative peace within the Roman Empire, which again allowed for travel and the communication of the gospel. And last but not least, Jesus came at a very specific time in history in order to fulfill prophecy. And if you want to look it up later, I put on your note sheet there Daniel 9.25, where God said when the Messiah would come. But I don't want to get into that today because I want to focus on what Paul's teaching us right now in Romans. And so today, I just want us to recognize that Jesus' timing of when he came was very specific. And it shows us that God knew what he was doing so that the gospel could go out to the whole world, to all of us. And so back in Romans chapter 6, Paul declares that Christ died for the ungodly. And now in verse 7, Paul says, For scarcely a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about this. You see, God did not wait for us to stop sinning. God did not wait until we did more good works than bad works before he came. God didn't even wait until we felt guilty of our sin. But while we were still sinners, he came and he died for us. Now, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 13, he said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And yet, Jesus laid down his life for his enemies in order to turn his enemies into his friends. How amazing is that? You see, if there's no greater love than this, then if you want to take notes, your first fill in the blank in your note sheet today, God cannot love you more than he did on the cross. God cannot love you more than He did on the cross. He cannot more fully express His love for you than when He laid down His life for you. This means that if God blesses you with some prayer request that you've been asking for and God grants you that request, that can't add to or make His love greater than it already has been expressed on the cross. It also means that if God chooses not to give you that thing that you've been praying for, 
it can't take away from his expression of love for you on the cross. Because there is no greater love than what he's shown us and given us on the cross. Let me put it this way. God may give additional proof of his love, but he cannot give greater proof of his love. Now look at verse 9. Paul says, much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Remember, the good news starts with the bad news. We are guilty sinners deserving judgment. The wrath of God is a very real thing. But he loved us so much that he poured out his wrath upon his son, Jesus, so that any who trust in him will be justified or declared righteous by God. We read in John chapter 3, in verse 36, Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so we either receive salvation or wrath from God. It's one or the other. And it all depends on whether or not we've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior or not. God won't force us, but He gives us that choice. And so, Paul says, if God loved us while we were still sinners, by dying for us, how much more will God treat us with favor and blessing now that we have been justified and cleansed from our sin? In other words, Paul is saying that the moment you've trusted in Jesus, it's only the beginning. Our relationship with God only gets deeper. It only gets better and greater from then on. Look at verse 10 with me. Paul says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. If you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're trusting that He is paying for your sin and that you're going to heaven because of His work, not because of your works, you can be assured that you're headed for heaven. And so, our response because of that gift, is to rejoice, to rejoice in God. But I think it's important that we understand that rejoicing in God is not about our feelings, but about our focus. Rejoicing in God is not about our feelings, but it's about our focus. You see, to rejoice is not a command to feel joy. It's a command to express joy as we dwell on His grace and on His love. This is why Paul, the apostle, was able to rejoice in every circumstance, no matter what was going on. You may remember the story in Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas traveled to a city called Philippi. And as they were there sharing the gospel and teaching people about Jesus, there were some people there that got really upset with Paul and Silas. And so they told the authorities, and the authorities came and they arrested Paul and Silas. They stripped off their clothes and they beat them and they put them in in jail in an inner chamber 
And as if that weren't bad enough, then they took their feet and they bound their feet in the stocks. So all night long their feet were bound as they're laying in this inner chamber in prison. All because they were sharing about Jesus in this city. And look at their response. In Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says, But at midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas rejoiced as they focused on God's amazing mercy and grace and love. Their circumstances were terrible, but they focused on God's love for them, which was displayed on the cross. And so as you and I rejoice, it doesn't mean that we have to feel that Christmas spirit, but we rejoice because of what Jesus has already done for us despite what our current circumstances may be, because He's given us what we need, eternal life with Him. Now, look at verses 12 through 21. We read about Adam being compared to Christ. Verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, And thus death spread to all men because all sin. So pause right there. Paul refers here to the very beginning, way back in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, we call it, in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned by eating from the only forbidden tree, we read in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 17, Then to Adam God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So, when your kids say, Dad, why do you have to work all the time? Why can't you just stay home and play with us? Well, here's your answer. Son, it's because of sin. That's why. That's why we have to work. It's because of sin. But notice the other result of Adam and Eve's sin. You see, after working hard to survive a lifetime, we all die and we all turn to dust. We are all subject to physical death. But interestingly, the shortness of life is part of God's mercy. Let's continue reading in Genesis chapter 3, now in verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And real fast, I just want to point out that even here in Genesis 3, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity of God, we see God is speaking to Himself. He's saying, man is like one of us. He's talking about Himself in the plural. One God, but three persons. Don't try to understand it. Your head will hurt. Right? God's bigger than we can fathom. But it's just amazing, the Trinity, even here in Genesis 3. And so, God continues speaking and He says, And now... Lest he, lest Adam, put out his hand and take also of the tree of life 
and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so God drove out the man, and he placed cherubim, those are angels, at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here we see that the reason God removed Adam and Eve from the garden is to keep them away from this tree of life because God says, I don't want them to live forever because now they're not good like they were in Genesis chapter 2 when I made them. Now they're broken. They're fallen. They're sinful. And I don't want them to live forever in this broken, sinful state, in this broken body, in this broken creation. And so God says, I'm going to remove them from the garden. Because God doesn't want us to stay how we are. But He wants us to have eternal life with Him, where He's going to restore us, restore our relationship with Him. He's going to give us a brand new body, and He's going to create a brand new heaven and earth. No longer fallen, no more broken. And so, it's remarkable that although death is a result of sin, God says, I can use that. In fact, I'm going to use death to conquer sin. The fact that God would look at that and say, you know what, I'm going to take that consequence and result of sin, which is death, and I'm going to put myself under that. I'm going to come and I'm going to die so that I might give them life. That's amazing. It's amazing that God can even think of doing that, let alone Him actually going through with it and, and enduring it. So back in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that death and sin came from one man from Adam. With Adam began the curse of sin. And here's our next fill in the blank. Because of Adam's sin, we are all born sinners. We're born sinners. You see, we inherit a sin nature in the sense that we're tempted by our own desires from within us. James says it this way in James chapter 1, verse 14. He says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. We're born with a natural desire to sin. And our own wicked heart leads us into temptation. And if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? As cute as they are, we love them to death. But one of their first words is, No. Mine. Right? And if they're not that advanced, they just have their sign language of kicking and punching. Right? Well, it's all part of the fall. And so, Paul continues now in Romans chapter 5, verse 13. And Paul says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. Therefore, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Paul mentions how the law wasn't given until the time of Moses in Exodus chapter 20. 
And yet, between the time of Adam and Moses, all those people were still sinners. And even if they didn't have the law of Moses given to them yet, Paul already showed us in Romans chapter 2 how we all have the law of God written on our hearts, right? We all know that if somebody came in the doors and just punched you in the face, that would be wrong, right? We would know that because we know in our hearts that's not right. But aside from that, just the fact that all those who lived between Adam and the giving of the law with Moses, all those people, they physically died. They don't live forever because we are all under the curse of sin. And we're all under the consequence, which is death. And so, death is there as a result of the original sin. And then Paul says that Adam is a type of Jesus or a type of Christ, like a sign that points us to Jesus in the sense that one man's actions... Adams affected lots and lots of people, all of us. And so, too, one man's actions, Jesus' actions, affects lots and lots of people if we trust in Him. And so, Paul continues in verse 15 now. And Paul says, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So Paul again mentions that Adam's works, they brought death to us all. Now, some might say, that's not fair. It's not fair that I suffer because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's choice. But Adam represents the best of mankind. You see, Adam was the one where God created him and God said, this is very good. Adam didn't have a fallen sinful nature within himself. So Adam wasn't tempted from his own sinful heart. Adam was only tempted externally by Satan. And Adam was in a perfect environment with the only temptation that Satan could give him, which was to eat from the one tree, the only rule don't eat from this tree. And Adam fell. And so he represents the best of us. None of us could have done any better. And so we all have the same consequence of Adam because we're from Adam. And so we all die. But because of God's grace, God's grace abounded to many. Verse 16 Paul says, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. And so because of Adam, we are condemned. We are correctly marked as guilty sinners deserving God's wrath. But because of Jesus... We are justified if we trust in Him. To be justified means that God declares us, who are guilty sinners, He declares us righteous. Almost like He stamps us with a paid in full stamp on our forehead. And He says, I've paid for this one because they've trusted in Me. They've been justified. And God treats us 
as if we've never sinned. Because when we trust in Jesus, God credits us with His righteousness. And so your next fill in the blank. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we are offered forgiveness. We are offered forgiveness. Adam brought condemnation by making us guilty by association. But Jesus brought justification by making us righteous by association. Paul continues in verse 17 now. Paul says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now, I like how Paul puts this. He says, instead of death reigning over us, God's grace flips it around so that we reign in life. We're no longer conquered by death, but we've been freed from that. And God gives us life so that we can rule and reign in eternal life with Him in heaven. I like to think of it as Jesus stepping into history to rewrite our ending, to rewrite what's going to happen. Verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Paul's told us several times already that we are sinners because of Adam's sin. That's who we are. And this idea is that we inherit sin. It's in our blood. I'm not saying physically. I'm not saying you can scope the DNA and find the sin gene. That's not what I'm saying. But we inherit sin from Adam. And I think it's important that we understand that we sin because we are sinners, not the other way around. We sin because we are sinners within, not the other way around. In other words, the thief steals because that's who he is. He's a thief. In our world, we like to think, well, he's a, he's a good boy. Don't mind that he murdered all those people. Deep down, he's really good. The Bible says, no. Deep down, he's horrible, just like we all are. It's true. You see, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, he says that we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing what we wanted to deep down, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's a good title for your nursery at home, right? Children of wrath, right? It's the truth. David says it this way. Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Iniquity is another word for sin. Now, David's not saying that he was an illegitimate child and that his, his mom got pregnant outside of marriage. That's not what he's saying. David is saying, 
from the moment that I was conceived in my mother's womb, I was a guilty sinner. That's what David's saying. From the moment of conception. The Bible is clear. We are sinners from birth. And our sinful actions are simply the result of our sinful heart. This is important because the world has bought into a lie. You see, the world believes that certain sins are okay because they're just natural desires. They might say, well, it's okay that we have sex before marriage because it's just a natural desire that we have. Or they might say, well, it's okay for me to give in to lust because I was born that way. But if we take that lie, that logic, and apply it anywhere else, we quickly realize that it doesn't hold any water. You see, can the thief justify his Walmart raid by simply saying, well, I just have a natural desire to steal things. Oh, okay, we'll open up that jail cell. You're free to go now. It doesn't work that way. Can, can the murderer justify himself by simply saying he was born to kill? Absolutely not. You see, the fact that sin is a natural desire doesn't change the fact that it's still sin. The fact that sin is a natural desire doesn't change the fact that it's still sin. The fact that we are born sinners and sin naturally, it doesn't excuse our verdict. It puts the nail in the coffin. It seals the deal that we deserve judgment. But God gives us hope. We who are born sinners, who are sinners through and through, are invited to be born again. Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus is speaking to another man, and Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus, God the Son, He became flesh. He became a man, took on human form, and He lived a perfect, sinless life. Then He died on the cross in our place, so that whoever trusts in Him is no longer held guilty, but deemed righteous and holy in God's sight. Jesus calls this being born again. When anybody trusts in Jesus, they become a Christian. And they are born again because their spirit moves from death to life. Our spirit within us. You see, this body, this is just our earthly tent, Paul calls it. It's temporary. We have a spirit within us. And our spirit is either going to go to heaven and receive a brand new body that's going to last forever, or our spirit's going to go to hell and suffer the wrath of God because we refused to trust in Jesus and receive His gift of salvation. And so when you put your faith in Jesus, your spirit moves from being dead to being alive. That's what it means to be born again. And what an important question for you to ask yourself today. Have I been born again? Have I trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior? Do I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? Today's a great day to know for sure. Because it all depends on Jesus' work, 
not ours. And so if you're not sure, then I invite you today to recognize that you're a sinner deserving judgment. But Jesus paid for your sin and He invites you to be born again. To no longer just be a sinner through and through, but to become a sinner saved by grace, saved by Jesus. We've got a few more verses here. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And then verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Remember, the law cannot make us right or just. The law simply reveals our sin. Paul told us in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So when God gave the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, it didn't help people live better or live righteously. The law simply magnified their sin. Their, fence, their offenses abounded. And this is important. I want you to understand that Christianity, being a Christian, it's not about a set of rules that we follow so that we can be Christians. Christianity is about a set of rules which show that we are guilty and show that we are hopelessly lost and we need Jesus. That's what it's about. And so we trust in Jesus and begin a relationship with Him. And we continue in that relationship by studying the Word, by living for Him, and not for ourselves. And so don't think that, okay, today it's about do this, not that. Focus on Jesus. Abide in Him. And He will change you from the inside out. So it becomes less a list of rules and it becomes this relationship that we get to have with our Lord and our Savior. And so when God gave the law, it wasn't so that people could be good enough and say, all right, I measure up to these, these rules. No, no, no. It was to show how great our sins were. Right? With Adam in the garden, there was only one rule. Don't eat of that tree. And he failed. Well, for us, we have a much longer list to show all of the different ways that we're sinners. And our offenses abounded. And yet, Paul says, but God's grace abounded much more. You see, His grace is that He gives us eternal life even though we are sinners through and through. And I love how Paul words this. That sin abounded, but grace abounded much more. Your next fill in the blank. No matter how great your sin, God's grace is greater. No matter how great your sin, whether for you it's a specific incident of sin, or for you it's just the magnitude of the list of sins, where you feel how heavy your sin is. God's grace is bigger. There is no sin or deed so wicked that God's grace cannot cover it. In other words, nobody will go to hell for being too sinful or being too evil. 
People go to hell for not receiving God's grace, for not trusting in Jesus. Verse 20 again, Paul says, But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam brought us sin and death, but Jesus brought us grace and eternal life. God loves you, and He demonstrated that love on the cross. There's no greater love. There's nothing God can do to more loudly proclaim His love for you than what He's already done on the cross. And if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, He invites you to do so today. Let's close with this last passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 20. It says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. How amazing that God takes us from sinner to righteous, all because of His grace and His love. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that even while we were still sinners, even while we still lived in our rebellion and our wickedness, Lord, You came and died for us on the cross. Lord, You made the first move. And Lord, You made the last move. And so now all You do is You invite us to receive the free gift of forgiveness of our sin. To receive the stamp of righteousness. To receive the free gift of eternal life with You and a get-out-of-hell-free card because of what You have done. And Lord, if there's anybody here today or listening online, they don't know if they've been born again yet. They don't know where they're headed. God, I pray that they would choose today to say, Lord, I might still have questions, but God, I do know this, that I am guilty. And I know that You came and You died in my place to give me eternal life and to show me how much you love me. Lord, I put my trust in you that in the day of my death I wake up in your presence for eternity all because of your work on the cross. God, we thank you that you humbled yourself to even death for us. Lord, we ask that you would make us, your church, your believers, God, make us filled afresh with your Holy Spirit. God, would you help us to simply abide in you. And as we continue in our relationship with you, Jesus, 
Holy Spirit, would you continue to change our hearts to be more and more like you? Holy Spirit, would you continue to use us as your hands and your feet to share your gospel to this world? God, we thank you for Christmas. Lord, it's a time of family and friends, a time of gifts, but ultimately it's a time of celebrating that you came for us and that you loved us. And so, Lord, may you be glorified today. God, may you be glorified this week. And, Lord, may you be glorified in each of our hearts and our lives. And we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. If we can pray for you, we would love to. Um, There's people up front that would love to pray with you. Whatever's going on in your life, if you just want to talk to somebody, we are here. Otherwise, don't forget the Christmas Eve service is this Friday. We're going to be here no matter the weather. It just depends on if we'll be in the amphitheater or indoors. So come out. uh, Probably about a 30-minute short service of just worship and um, just fellowship together. On your way out, say Merry Christmas to somebody else. God bless you. Thanks for joining us and have a great day.